right, I want to welcome on my next guest. We've got longtime NFL defensive end and sports broadcasting legend, Mike Golick. Mike, how's everything going for you? Going well, man. Going well. Going well. So, so I have a question. What time do you get up today? Because I know you've been getting up real early, but now you don't have to anymore. Well, what's interesting is, yeah, for the first time in 25 years, 22 at ESPN, and then I was doing morning radio in Arizona before that same basic, you know, time. So before 30, I'd set the alarm for. So it's not set for that anymore, but <laughs> I still kind of stir at 430. You know, it's tough to just get off of that habit. So I'll kind of wake up, look at the clock, and then now I can close my eyes and go to bed till about go back to sleep till about seven or so, but then the dogs wake me up anyway. So <laughs> that's wild. That's interesting. So even on even on weekends too, that's incredible. Yeah, the weekend, same thing. Well, my body's a, a little more on the weekends. I think my body knows it's a weekend at times, uh, so it'll let me sleep in or sometimes not wake up at 4.30, but it's tough for me to sleep past 7 or 7.30. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. So I want to ask you a little bit about kind of your, your early career. So how did you end up in South Bend at Notre Dame? Well, I mean, that my brother Bob went to Notre Dame first in 1975. I was 12 years old, so I'd go watch him. Uh, and then my brother Greg went there in 1980, so we, we had ties to Notre Dame at that point. And while I was recruited by a lot of teams around the country, I had kind of been already entrenched myself in Notre Dame because of my brother. So it was kind of an easy call for to go there. That's awesome. That's so cool. Um, was the NFL on your radar or were you kind of just focused on college football at the time? Well, I mean, I, I think every kid when they're playing Little League always dreams of whatever sport they're playing, basketball, football, baseball, soccer, whatever – that they, they envision themselves playing at the pro level. For me, the reality of it probably came, I think, sophomore, junior year in college where I thought, you know, I, I think I have the ability to play at that level. Um, so there's the want to, which I think everybody wants, and then there, there has to be that, that realization where I think I have a, a concrete shot at this. So it was probably at that time in college. What, were, what was your draft outlook like? What were they saying? Where were they saying you were going? Well, that was, that was a tough part. After my junior year, I was, uh, I was named the MVP of the defense for Notre Dame. I think I was an honorable mention All-American that year. And coming back next year, I was kind of a big uh, outside linebacker at about 260, 265. So there was a projection that I could be maybe in an end of first round, second round draft pick. And the first game in my senior year against Purdue – uh, on a trap block, uh, the, the, the guard got underneath my pad a bit and jacked my shoulder pretty good. And the smart thing, because I ended up getting it operated on after the season, the smart thing would have been taking care of it right then. But I had that kind of that old school, at times, bad mentality of you can walk, you can play. So I tried to play through it, and I never really played more than a half the rest of the year, a half of a game each of the rest of the games. And then I went to the combine, but I had had surgery, so I couldn't do any of the things at the combine. So I wasn't as prepared because I couldn't uh, for the draft. So I ended up going in the 10th round. So I thought it was going to be a lot better. If I was smart, I would have had surgery, skip that year, come back the next year. Maybe it would have been different, but you know what? Can't look back at this point. Um, did you watch all the way through or did you, did, did you, how long until you realized, until they called your name, were you watching? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is back when, you know, the draft was just a couple of days, not three days. Yeah. And I, I actually got called on the second day at about midnight. So it's a long, long time <laughs> to sit and watch. Uh, you know, I had friends around my dorm at Notre Dame. My brother Bob came in town. 
uh, and hung out and uh, we probably did, did more drinking than anything else because we had a lot of time on our hands. So yeah, that second day I got that call at about midnight and uh, I was obviously happy to get drafted, but uh, you know, just happy to have a chance going somewhere. And then what was your first experience like going to the Oilers? Well, I mean, I was a 10th round rookie, you know, 10th round rookies weren't expected to make it, you know, so I had to, to scratch and claw on my way. I mean, there was a lot of nerves of what I was stepping to, into. Now, my brother Bob had been in the, in the NFL for a number of years, so I could go off of what he would tell us about those experiences. But until you experience them yourselves, it's a professional level. I think one of the biggest misnomers I had was, you know, in college, you have practice, you have film, you have study hall, you have classes, it takes up a lot of your time. I thought, oh man, the NFL, this is great. It'd be a few hours a day. I have a lot, a lot of free time. My God, you know, you're there at seven in the morning till six, seven at night, you know, and, and, and not a lot of it is on the field. You know, it's practice for a couple hours, but there's walkthrough, there's meetings, there's lifting, there's more meetings, there's film study. So I think the biggest realization for me was while it's a sport and I love playing the sport. It was now my job that this was, this was my profession now. Absolutely. Was there a point where, since you were a 10th round pick most and most, like you're saying, not expected to make it. Was there a point at when you felt like you had solidified yourself enough that you really didn't have to look over your shoulder? Again? Well, my first, my first year in about the second or third week of camp, I broke my ankle. So I went on IR and, and at those times injury reserve meant you were going to be on it all year. And you, but you were going to be on the team. So I got my salary. I just didn't play because I was on injured reserve. So then the next year was really the first year I played. And as far as feeling comfortable, probably my third year, probably when I, by the time I got to Philadelphia and worked in the rotation there, I never felt fully comfortable like I haven't made, but I felt more secure than other years, probably when I started my years in Philadelphia. How do you, how do you end up in Philly? Well, Houston, uh, it was in 87. Uh, that was the year we struck as players. We walked out and they had the replacement players. The replacement players played like four games and we were on our picket line. It was like a wildcat strike. We were trying to obviously, you know, get things we never got because the, the owners just put replacement players in there. We ended up going back after four weeks and we got nothing out of it because a lot of our big, big name players around the league, big money guys, they broke the, the picket line. So they really screwed the rest of us. So we went back there and I was a big union guy. And I don't think the team was real happy. I was a big union guy and they kept a lot of the replacement players on the team. And, and I went from being a starter to a guy that was inactive for the games. So I went to the coach at that point and I said, listen, if this is the way it's going to be, because you don't like the way I acted during the strike, just cut me. And be careful what you wish for. And they cut me. Uh, but luckily that was, they kind of got cut like on a Tuesday and that Thursday I signed with Philadelphia. So it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Is it true at the old vet stadium, they had a jail and a court? Yeah, not so much a court, but they had a jail. If anybody that got out of hand, um, they just took them down there. They took them down in the jail. So kind of a cooling off period, yeah. kind of going there into a cell or into a room. I don't think it was an actual cell no. into a room there where it could cool off. And then it was decided whether afterward you were going to go to a real jail or they were going to let you go. But yeah, they, they definitely had a detention center, <laughs> I guess, if you want to call it that in the vet. Has, has the link thought about instituting one of those or not yet? No, I don't think so. Even though <laughs> Philly fans are, Philly fans are incredible, but yeah. they are, uh, they can be rabid. There's no doubt about it. 
Which fan base is more intense, Philadelphia or in South Bend? Well, Philadelphia, they're more intense to a a fever pitch. <laughs> you can be scared sometimes <laughs> uh, level. But, I mean, I love them. They're very passionate. If you're yeah. doing great, they love you. If you're doing bad, they let you know. Um, Notre Dame, it's a – you know, we love you no matter what. In Philly, they love you no matter what, but they're not they are not afraid to let you know they don't like what the product right now. So it's a little more intense in Philadelphia than South Bend. Did you ever, any, ever have any interesting experiences, maybe like away from the field with Philadelphia fans, like going up to you or saying anything interesting? No, no, just, you know, like I said, they're very intense at times yeah. during the week. You know, after a loss, maybe that Wednesday or Thursday after a practice, I'd be out at the – grocery store or something something and somebody would say why are you out why aren't you home you know watching tape or something i'd be like listen you know that's kind of not how it works you know this is we move on to the next game or they're so distraught over the loss and wondering why we're not as distraught over the loss and i'd be like because we got another game you know you if we lose on sunday you got to wait till the next sunday for us to play again i got to prepare for a whole nother team that week so i can't sit there and mourn that loss like fans can at times so uh, there, there, there can be some interesting uh, conversations. Is it true you used to do hits on the Randall Cunningham show? Yeah, it was a segment called Golik's Got It where I would do uh, kind of humorous looks at the upcoming opponent. Like when we were going to play Cleveland, you know, they have their um, their uh, area called the Dog Pound with all the, the fans there in the one end zone. So I went to an actual Dog Pound with dogs, ate Alpo, try and get the feel of it, what the dog pound would be like. I did stuff like that Arrowhead Stadium. I got a bow and arrow and was like an archery guy. And so it was just kind of funny looks at the upcoming game coming up. It was like three, four-minute segment. It was fun to do. Do you like that he has that new role with the Raiders? That's pretty cool. Uh, You know, I always love when former players get involved back in the NFL because obviously they have great personal experience to draw on. I think that can help younger players. It's one thing I learned a lot. My dad was always like, when you're a youngster in a situation, keep your mouth shut and your ears and your eyes open and try and learn. And I I think some young players still do that. Some don't. I think that's been lost a little bit. But I think hopefully enough still do where they say, okay, there's a reason this guy played 15 years in a league. Or if I'm on a team and there's a vet on the team for 10 years, there's a reason he made it for 10 years. Maybe I should try and soak up some of that knowledge on how to be a professional. You think if Derek Carr and Mariota don't play that well, he could get some action this year or no? No, not one bit. And he wouldn't <laughs> want to get any action. No. <laughs> That'd be great. Him and Gruden would be fantastic. Um, <laughs> how did you make the transition into broadcasting from playing? Well, after I did the Golik Scott thing, um, you know, ESPN is a few hours from Philadelphia, and, and they found out that I had done that. And um, in the off season, they asked me to do a few things. They were that's basically when ESPN two was kind of just getting going in the early nineties. So I did some stuff for them back with uh, on Sports Night. It was called with Susie Culver and Keith Olbermann wow. and the, and the late great Stu Scott. You know, I, I that's where I first met them. But I was actually doing some segments with them. So. I kind of had built a little bit of race relationship with ESPN. So when I retired in ninety four. They hired me to call college football games to start there for ESPN and ABC, and then it just all snowballed from there. How did you react for the first time when they said, hey, we want you to start getting in here and being ready at six? Well, you know, I was doing – I was actually doing morning radio in Arizona, and I would – three nights a week I would do – it's called NFL Tonight, the football show. Well, back then it was called NFL Live. It was me and 
Mark Malone, Sean Salisbury, and Merrill Hodge. Wow. We had that show going. So I would, I would basically do like Monday in Phoenix, Monday or Tuesday in Phoenix radio. I'd fly to Bristol, Connecticut, and I would do radio in the morning. They would hook me up in a radio studio to do it back to Phoenix on like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then like on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes or Wednesday, Thursday, I would do the radio show. I would do NFL Live, the studio show. And then on Friday, I would do that. And then I would fly to whatever college game I was covering. I would fly to like Baton Rouge or something like that. I would do a show Friday morning from there because I had to be in Baton Rouge. I'm just picking that place. And then after the game, I would fly back to Phoenix on a Sunday and then start the whole process over again. So one of the times I flew to ESPN to do the TV part of it, they said, hey, uh, ESPN Radio started already, but they never had a national morning show. So they said, hey, what would you think about you and a guy named Tony Bruno, who I knew from my Philadelphia Eagle days uh, as a radio guy, doing the first national morning show for ESPN? And, you know, I was, had to, would have to move my family, my wife and three kids across country. So, you know, my agent, we worked out the deal. And it was, as my wife said, it's, it's, we need to do this. This is a, a worth the move to give this a shot at ESPN. And uh, so the time I had to get up didn't matter. I had to get up early to play football anyway. So that all that doesn't really matter. You just get used to anything. And then so throughout the years with doing that and then from uh, Mike and Mike to Golik and Wingo, was there ever a guest that you really got starstruck by? If there was, it would be more of an entertainment guest. Sport, be, be, from playing sports and talking about sports, you get to meet all the top yeah. you know, sports people. So I got to meet a lot of people in the entertainment world, you know, which, which was pretty cool, you know? So I like that. You know, we, Greeny and I got to go on David Letterman 11 times. Wow. We got to throw out the first pitch at a bunch of ballparks. We got to sing that seventh inning stretch in, in Wrigley. Uh, we got to go to the white house. So there were a lot of great perks that came along with, uh, with the 22 years, no doubt about it. Were there ever any, any uh, memorable calls, people calling into the show that you were like, what the hell is going on with this guy? We never really took a lot of calls, to be honest with you. Morning and morning drive, we didn't really do a lot of that. Yeah. We didn't feel people driving around in the morning on, the, on their way to work wanted to hear from someone from wherever <laughs> talk. They wanted to hear us talk or, yeah. or about food or pop culture or sports or something like that. So in all honesty, we were a never, we never were a calling show. Interesting. And then flipping over to this upcoming football season are you consciously optimistic what are you what are you expecting well i mean more optimistic with the pro yeah than college right now just because the pros are basically all under one umbrella i don't mean bubble but under one group of leadership they have a union they have a league and they've all worked together under this where colleges hell the conferences can't even get together we knew the ncaa wasn't going to do anything and they never do they always just decree something and then say you conferences work it out oh, yeah. so the conferences are left to fight for themselves everybody keeps thinking the power five is all going to come together i never thought they would i think there's too many egos involved for them to do it and as we see we have the split from the pac-12 the big 10 not playing to the other three that are playing so i'm less optimistic there i think they'll start unless there's another rise like we've already started to see you know, at Notre Dame, at North Carolina, at other places, we've seen spikes. Yeah. Um, but I do think it will start at some point. It will be interesting if it finishes, though. I have more – at this point, I think I have more hope – hope's the wrong word. I have more confidence that the NFL will go through than I do college at, at this point. 
Interesting. What percent chance do you give it that there's spring football? Because I think it's a load, load of BS. Well, I mean, spring football is just a chance to, to get the guys out and play because yeah. they'd have to really be careful of that. I mean, I look at it this way. What, because they can't run a normal spring. Think of the last two teams in the NFL. They play on February 7th. All right, those are the last two teams. So everybody else has done before that. The next time those last two teams, the next time they put on pads after February 7th is about the third week of July for training camp. Put on pads. They work out before that, but put on pads. So that's March, April, May, June, July. It's five months, right? And that's just two teams. Everybody before that gets actually a longer amount of time. So if you're going to do spring ball and you're going to end it in April, May, maybe, then you got June, July, August is when you're supposed to start putting on pads for the next season. So can you do it? Maybe if you start in December and only play to March, if you push the following season till like the SEC is starting uh, later in September, I know it's less games, there may be a way to make it more palatable, but that's very difficult to ask guys to play basically two seasons of football or close to it in a calendar year. I think it's going to be very, very tough to do. They would really have to manipulate the schedules. And then for the NFL, assuming all goes well, everybody's responsible, everybody's tested, no outbreaks, nothing. Who, who do you think could surprise some people this year? Um, I mean, you look at a team like the Cardinals. I mean, I, I still think they're a year or so away, but DeAndre Hopkins going there. I mean, I think Kyler Murray had to be doing backflips <laughs> for that one. Uh, they just needed to improve their offensive line, which started playing better a little bit at the end of the year and improve the defense some. I look at them as a team that could be a bit of a surprise. Can Cleveland make that jump? You know, a lot's going to be on Baker Mayfield. I wasn't, I wasn't sold on him as a number one pick. They've really gone after it in the offseason with who they picked up and who they drafted, how they've helped the old line and such. So they're a team kind of ready to, to make that spring. I keep wondering about Atlanta. Matt Ryan and Julio Jones only have so much more time left in this league. There's a lot of talent there. Sometimes they look like world beaters and other times they don't. So, so they're wildly inconsistent. But they're in the same division with the Saints, who I would expect to be one of the teams at the end, and now Tampa Bay getting Brady there. Uh, so that's a tough division to be in. Do you th- how do you think – I'm in the D.C. area. How do you think Washington's going to do this year? Because the name is one thing, but I couldn't tell you their second – wide receiver and aside from the defensive line a lot yeah I mean listen when when you have a young quarterback if it's going to be Dwayne Haskins you still have to build around him uh in the old line we know they had their injuries and they had the whole deal with Trent Williams uh that, that that went on you're right about the wide receivers you had Jordan Reed you had the tight end but he just kept getting concussions that was a shame now the defense you see that D line Chase Young coming in and that D line full of a couple of Alabama players you saw what the depth of a D line in San Francisco did last year and how it can help so you hope for something like that in Washington with the depth of that line but you know and, and because of that and because they had a really good running game in San Francisco you didn't have to rely as heavily on your quarterback you know, the running game isn't isn't as, as good as a San Francisco running game in Washington. Adrian Peterson, though, trying to just keeps on going. It's amazing. So a lot's going to hinge on if it's going to be Dwayne Haskins. Are they going to let him be the guy and try and have him grow? The Alex Smith story has been un- unbelievable uh, for what he has done. But the, the future is, seems to be in Dwayne Haskins' hands if he can grab hold of it and do something with it. Are you concerned about Alex Smith potentially getting re-injured or you just want to see him? Oh, I mean, how could you not be? I mean, anybody who didn't see what he went through, but he's also doing what a lot of athletes do. An athlete's demeanor 
helps them in rehab, number one. Yeah. And I mean, his again wasn't almost wasn't a football rehab. It yeah. was it was life threatening. What he had to come yeah, back yeah. from. It yeah. was ridiculous what he went through. So while I could sit there on one hand saying, "Man, he's nuts for coming back," on the other side, I put myself on that. I'm like, "That's my leg. I'd probably give it a shot." Yeah. You know, players are used to legs, knees, elbows, wrists, shoulders. Now this was beyond obviously yeah. you know joe theisman-esque yeah um so it was a little different but still it's something you're like okay it's repaired dr say it's repaired the biggest hurdle is going to be mentally for him yeah. and when a doctor can tell you you're physically fine but mentally you have to go out there it's one thing in practice when you have a different color jersey and nobody can hit you it's another thing if you're in a game and people are going to come try and hit you and all that trash falls in front of your legs and the interior linemen so the mental part of that is going to be interesting. But, yeah, there's part of me that says, why are you doing it? And there's another part of me that completely understands why he's doing it. And then before I forget, so I know you're a big donut guy, and I've been having this debate with my yeah. buddies back and forth. What are your top four, top four flavors? Well, I mean, I'm a chocolate guy, so I like chocolate ice cream, icing, and I'm a cream-filled guy, not custard and not jelly, but like butter you like, cream. You like or, jelly? No. Really? No. No, there will be no jelly in my donuts. None. <laughs> Interesting. So I'm, I'm basically – now, they have all these specialty donut shops out now that have different things on top of them. But if you're talking about basic donuts, yeah. my two – I'll really go with two big ones is chocolate, either a chocolate glaze or a chocolate icing, but a cream-filled really gets me going. And, again, no custard, no, like, Boston cream-filled, <laughs> none of that, and no jelly. Give me that nice buttercream in the middle. The munchkins do it for you or no? I might, I eat munchkins like potato chips. You know, I just pop them and pop them and pop them. So the yeah. so if there's a lot of them, I'm going to be in trouble. But I can go with a munchkin. I just again, especially at a place like Duncan, there's three kind of uh, munchkins. I'm not getting the jelly filled munchkins. Interesting. It's the glaze and the chocolate. No jelly. Really? I thought more people like like jelly. Nope. Not I mean, a but I don't. Yeah, more power to you do. Hey, do your thing. Yeah. But yeah. it's just not for me. And then so flip, uh, flipping over to sports that are going on now, basketball and baseball, what have been your thoughts on the bubble in Orlando? Oh, my God. The bubble has been fantastic. I mean, yeah. the testing procedures they've done, the bubble there, the, the WNBA, the wobble, as they call it, yeah. MLS, which was in Disney as yeah. well, hockey, which was in two places. And they, they, I can't remember the last time hockey's had a positive test. No. It's worked incredibly well. So – you know it can be done. It's just yeah. a matter of now how much are they going to have to do it? When are we going to get a vaccine? What's going to happen for the beginning of next year? I mean, remember, the NBA is going to finish, you know, in a little bit here in October, and then they normally start up again in, in November. They'll probably start in December this time around. Yeah. But, you know, are we going to be any better off? Are they going to have to play in a bubble again? And remember, that'll be 30 teams, not 22. Yeah. So can they, can they continue to do this? For the NFL and Major League Baseball, I know they're talking about the possibility of postseason going into a bubble. Will they do that? One of my thoughts is you probably can, if you, you know, yeah. but if you make it all the way to the postseason, maybe it's been working pretty well where you didn't need the bubble and you can continue to do that. We know in baseball early on, they had the situation obviously with the Marlins and uh, with the Phillies, the Cardinals and such, but it seemed to kind of work itself through now. The NFL hasn't started playing games yet, and they've had some positives, but nothing too crazy right now. So I, I think I think it all seems – you know, you cross your fingers a little more for baseball and the NFL and certainly college because they're not playing in a true bubble where when's the last time we even talked about COVID 
when we're talking about hockey or MLS or or WNBA or NBA. It's more about the games, and some of the games in the NBA have been fantastic. Yeah. And then for, for NFL, I know you probably couldn't do one. If they were to say we're to implement 32 individual bubbles, let's say they book some of the nicest hotels in every city that is an NFL team, um, they have enough room so the players can bring their families, they can have school there, they can have activities there, and they restrict access. How many players would opt out? Well, I, I – First off, I don't think that's realistic. Where are you going in a bubble in one hotel that has a school? You know, ballroom, and has your, you could get some teachers in there and you could kind of figure it out. I, I, I think that'd be – I don't think there's any shot now. When you go to the playoffs, when you're down to 14 teams, and, and I'm not even saying include the family. Think of it this way. The Super Bowl this year is February 7th. The end of the regular season is June 3rd, okay? So that's basically a month. If you want to bubble for the postseason, put like, like the Saints are doing right now in training camp. The Saints have four floors of a hotel for 180 personnel, and it's optional. And 150 people are staying there. So make the postseason mandatory if you want, if you think you need that. And I'm not sure they will because if they made it to the postseason, they made it to the postseason for a reason. Maybe things went all right for them. But if you need to bubble, bubble the postseason, and the most two teams are in for is a month. Remember, teams lose along the way and will be out of the bubble. So you get a hotel and you have them away from their family. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's a month. Yeah. When I used to go to training camp, and you're too young for this, we used to be away from our families, everyone for six weeks. Six weeks we would go away to training camp, wouldn't see anybody. We would all just be there together on some, non, some college somewhere, living in the dorms, practicing every day, twice a day, hitting for four to six weeks. So we did that anyway. We used to bubble in training camps. Now they don't do that anymore because they have their own facilities and such. But you could do that in the postseason if you wanted to, if you felt like you needed to. Did all the even like the kind of bigger name guys, they abide by that or are they like, hey, I'm going to drive for, by, by staying at the training camp? Oh, no. Like in Houston, our training camp was six hours away from, from no, Houston. You're, you're not driving to that. So no. you're not driving anywhere. <laughs> when I was in Philadelphia, it was in, uh, in Delaware you know, where our, where our camp was. You were there. That's where you were. You had curfew every night. You were staying in a dorm. That's, that's, you were, we were secluded as a team. We ate in the, the cafeteria together. So we, that's all, we, we bubbled. I mean, we went to some bars and stuff, but you could easily have yeah. bubbled even more if you yeah. wanted to. We did that all the time. Interesting. That's wild. And then for, for a lot of the undrafted guys that really aren't going to be getting their shot this year, do you think you're going to start seeing some kind of low, uh, not as big name guys making impacts later in the season and potentially next year, or how do you see that going to work out? Yeah, that's a tough part for the, for the lower drafted guys and the free agents. They're not going to get that opportunity to shine because that's what you have to do. You have to make the coach stop the film, you know, and say, Oh, wow, look at that. Uh, and they're, they're just not going to get that opportunity. So it's going to be very difficult. The back half of the roster on who's going to make the team. It's going to be a comfort level. Of, of coaches with players. What I think you'll see is a high, is a continuous turnover. You see it more and more any day, the back half of the roster. You see cuts and re-signings every week in the NFL by a ton of teams, especially a team like the Patriots. So they're constantly kind of revolving the back end of their uh, roster. And I think that's going to continue. It's a shame because, listen, I was a late-round pick, 10th rounder. My son, Mike, was undrafted. So we lived in that position of having to fight and scrap for a few reps and you got to make the most of those few reps to, to have a chance. And a lot of guys aren't going to get that chance this year. And that's a shame.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's really all really the questions I really had for you. I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time. And for people that aren't following you on social media, how can they find you? Uh, my, my Twitter and Instagram are at ESPN Golden. Very simple. Hey, hey that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, that, this has been a lot of fun. I just wanted to thank you again. Can't wait till you're back on air because this has just been weird. So waiting for it. And this has been, <laughs> this has been great. Thank you. I just want to thank Thanks. you again. Appreciate it.